0: Hello, friends. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to let you know that I've got a CME event currently running. It'll probably run through the end of the year 2020. It's about atopic dermatitis. It's free. It's worth 1.5 CME credit hours. It's got some self-study modules. You kind of go at your own pace. You interact with some of the other participants and with me, and then we have a couple live discussions. You learn some more about atopic dermatitis. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. This is a bonus episode. This is a lecture that I gave as part of a course called the Practical Dermatology in Primary Care Course at the end of October 2020 through the University of Utah. And this lecture was entitled Common Stuff in Kids, and it talks about Common dermatologic stuff in kids that you might find in a PCP's office. If you would like to see the video, you can do so on our website, DermospherePodcast.com. If you don't find it on the homepage, then just go to the bonus episodes section. Here we go. Okay, so our next speaker is me, which I assume is a disappointment for many of you because you've been hearing me talk for a while, but we're going to go ahead keep on the Luke Johnson train, but I think this is the last you'll hear from me as an actual speaker. So I'm a pediatric dermatologist. I also see um, adults. I see about 70% kids and 30% adults probably. And this is a talk about common stuff that you guys, I assume, experience in the world of primary care when it comes to kids and their skin. So in terms of conflicts, um, I don't know that I really have any officially, but I am running a CME event a a different CME event about a topic, dermatitis. It's free and I'll talk more about it at the end of the talk if anybody's just interested in being a part of it. And then also, I co-host a dermatology podcast. So if you consider yourself an enthusiast of both podcasts and dermatology, check it out. It's available on Apple Podcasts or many other places where you can get your podcasts. And the reason it's sort of a conflict is because uh, we review some of the latest dermatology research So a lot of the stuff that I end up including in my talks is stuff that I discovered while looking up articles for the podcast. All right, so I'm going to start with atopic dermatitis, often called eczema. It's one of the most common things I see, It might be the most common diagnosis I see in my clinic. And I assume that you guys see plenty of it as well in in pediatric and in adult patients. So There's no fancy audience response system, because every time we've tried to use them in the past, they've had technical glitches. Someday we'll find one that works. But just commit in your head to the answer here. So which of the following is the most important aspect of treating a patient with atopic dermatitis? Is it allergy testing, diet, moisturizers, probiotics, or steroids? Think in your head, commit Commit to one right answer. And if it was moisturizers, good job. If it wasn't moisturizers, good job. You're learning something, so this is worth your time. And the reason moisturizers are the most important is because they help restore the skin barrier. So this is the way I like to think of atopic dermatitis and the underlying problem. This is the best diagram I could find about it. And it says allergens, but just replace the word allergens with the word stuff or the word irritants. So in normal, healthy skin, you've got a nice firm barrier against the outside world. But in atopic dermatitis, that barrier is leaky. And because the barrier is leaky, water evaporates away from the skin and people get dry and other stuff can get into the skin and create irritation, which we see as the pink, itchy, scaly rash of eczema. That's how I explain it to patients and their parents. And so to treat atopic dermatitis, in my opinion, we have to treat, it, treat two different aspects of it. We restore the skin barrier, which we do with bathing and moisturizing techniques, and we calm down the inflammation, which we do with our medications. So, speaking of moisturizers and improving the barrier, what is a dermatologist's favorite treatment? Here are your hints. It's not Topical steroids, though, boy, we love topical steroids. It's not doxycycline, but we use that for everything too. It seems to work. It's not reassurance, though I do do a lot of reassurance and I I very much enjoy reassuring people. It's, drum roll, petroleum jelly. You can also call it Vaseline, though the Vaseline company actually makes a number of different products, which is kind of frustrating. You can call it petrolatum if you want, but just 100% petroleum jelly. I love it so much it's good for moisturizing so this is my default moisturizer that i recommend for people with atopic dermatitis um, it's good for wound care so dermatologists love 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 this stuff um, for wound care so when we do a biopsy or excise something we put on a little layer of vaseline put a bandage over it and we say to the patient leave this dressing on for 24 to 48 hours at the end of that time take the dressing off wash gently with soap and water and then vaseline is the bandage." Vaseline can help the new keratinocytes crawl along the surface and help this the the tissue heal and we are suspicious of Neosporin even though lots of people like it because if you believe the studies 15 to 20% of people exposed to that become allergic to Neosporin and the reason it seems to work for lots of things is just because it's a nice ointment like Vaseline So you don't really need to use the medication. You just need the ointment part, which is the petroleum jelly. I also like it as a barrier. So this is especially good for babies, especially aged like 9 to 14 months when they are got eczema all over their faces and it's increased because they're teething and drooling and smearing food all over themselves. I tell parents, if his face was always shiny with petroleum jelly, I think this would get better a lot faster. And then it helps for other random stuff as well. So what are the downsides? I don't know that it really causes acne. It kind of seems like it should, but one of my mentors says that it doesn't. But it does, it can occlude things and kind of feel like good, kind of cloying and hot and maybe give people mildly area if it's 90 degrees outside, it's kind of messy and greasy. So I recognize it's not for everybody. So what I tell patients is, I recognize that it's not for everybody. If it's not for you, then just find the thickest, greasiest thing that you kind of like putting on your skin. So in summary, Vaseline is the bomb. Made that one up myself. So we mentioned bathing technique. So bathing is something that I think um, I especially see confusion about, both in terms of parents and also in, from primary care doctors and all kinds of people are confused about bathing, it seems. So I have some parents who tell me, well, I'm only bathing them once a week now because they told me not to bathe them very much. And I have other people who say, well, I bathe them every day, but only for five minutes and that kind of thing. So here's how I like to think about it. If water is on the skin for any reason, bath, a shower, a swimming pool, a long romantic walk in the rain, whatever, once that water leaves the skin, if it just evaporates, if it's toweled off, whatever, that water takes other water away with it. Because as we know from chemistry class, water is polar and attracts more water. So anytime water gets on your skin, it'll dry out. So the solution is to use a good moisturizer like Vaseline to make sure that when that water leaves your skin, it can't take any more with it because there's a barrier protecting the water that's already in your skin. So what I normally recommend for kids with eczema is a plain water bath no soap or shampoo or anything it turns out human skin doesn't really need it, except in the problem areas and you don't really develop problem areas until you become a smelly teenager So just plain water. At the end of 10 minutes or so, you can shampoo the kid's hair if you want, but then take her him, him or her out so they're not sitting in shampooy water, and then don't dry them off. Out of the bath, onto a towel or onto the floor, and then while they're still dripping wet, medicine to rash, moisturizers everywhere else, preferably petroleum jelly. So sitting in the bath for 10 minutes, the water seeps into the skin, hydrates it, you get out, and you immediately cover it with petroleum jelly so that it can't leave, If you do it that way, bathing is a good way to moisturize the skin and restore the skin barrier. And if you do it that way, I don't think it really matters how frequently you bathe the kid. I tell parents, some people like to give their kids a bath every day. My kids are lucky if they get a bath once a week. I don't think it really matters that much. Okay, let's talk about medicines we can use to treat eczema. So what would I recommend for this patient with eczema? Hydrocortisone, 2.5% ointment. Triamacinolone, 0.1% ointment for 10 days on, 10 days off, or just use it until the skin is smooth, or would I recommend something else? Think about it, commit to a diagnosis, and what I recommend might not necessarily be the same thing you recommend. I think you should always do things that you are comfortable with, but what I would recommend is Triumph set 0.1% ointment, BID, until the skin is smooth and clear, regardless of how long that takes. So I've had a number of parents tell me that well, I was prescribed this medicine, and it worked really well, but they told me to only use it for 10 days or only for two weeks. And so I stopped it, and then the rash came right back. And there seems to be a lot of concern about topical steroids among families, pharmacists, other people in the medical community, um, because most people are worried about side effects. And the side effect I hear cited most commonly for things that people are worried about is skin thinning or atrophy. But the reports of atrophy have been greatly exaggerated, as Mark Twain might say. So we treat lots and lots and lots of kids with topical steroids. And I think I have seen steroid-induced atrophy maybe like twice. It just doesn't happen very often. The vast majority of my patients and parents underuse it for fear of side effects rather than overuse it and get themselves into some kind of trouble. So I normally tell people I Tell that to parents if they have some concerns. And I say, as long as you're putting it on rash, you shouldn't get into trouble with it. So in terms of the medicines, I always use ointments. Ointments are greasy like petroleum jelly, the actually makes the steroid more potent. And also, as we already discussed, ointments do a good job of also restoring the skin barrier, et cetera. And I always do I always do it. Never do creams or anything, always ointments for kids. Um, because they're kids. They don't really get to complain too much, or they can complain, but they can't really do anything about it. Whereas for adults, they can say, well, I really don't like the greasiness, so I just didn't use it. The parents get to put this stuff on their kids, so ointments it is. Make sure you give them parents enough. So I've had some parents who've come in and they've been given a good medicine, like Triamcinolone 0.1% here, but they were given like a 30 gram tube that was supposed to last them a month. So you just wanna make sure they have enough to use but don't give them too much that they could potentially get themselves into trouble. So when you are filling in how much to give somebody in your request for the medicine, that I think is a decision point that sometimes gets a little bit overlooked or glossed over. You wanna give people enough that they have enough to make them better, but not so much that you start worrying that if they refill it three times and never come back to you, that they're gonna get themselves into trouble. I love Triumphant 1.1% ointment. It's my workhorse. I use it for people of all ages. I put it on infants, put it on teenagers, et cetera. we talked about this two weeks or 10 days thing. As far as I can tell, there's no medical data at all beside behind use this for two weeks and then give yourself a break. It's just sort of like received wisdom that somebody once invented. Um, But because that kind of comment is so common and because there's so much concern about topical steroids, I usually give parents something to do in two weeks. So usually I'll say, use this twice a day to the rash until the skin is smooth and clear, regardless of how long that takes. However, if you've been doing it to a particular spot twice a day for two weeks, and it's not a whole lot better then call me. Almost nobody ever calls me maybe because they just think I'm crazy and don't want anything more to do with me. Um, non-steroidal alternatives. So calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus, Ointment and pimercolimus, the brand names are Protopic and LNL. Those are good. They work pretty well. They're just a little bit wimpy. They're not as strong as triamcinolone. They're probably like hydrocortisone 2.5% ointment or desonide strength, but they, they're fine. They're good choices. Chrisaborol, or you, don't like that stuff. So there are patients out there with severe atopic dermatitis, like this poor patient here. Look at that big lymphadenopathy that she has because of her atopic dermatitis um refer them to dermatology you can call me or call our office we can get people in urgently we're all very good about that because we're all pediatric dermatologists we love children we want them to get the care that they need we'll fit them in in the meantime wet wraps are a good option to get people better as quickly as possible so real quickly wet wraps are soaking in a plain water bath for about 10 minutes stepping out of the bath while you're still dripping wet covering yourself head to toe with triamcinolone 0.1% ointment and then putting on a set of damp, not dripping wet, but damp pajamas, and then like a sweat suit or something over the top of that so the child doesn't get chilled, sleep like that if possible. Um, It can work miracles, even if they've already been using the same medicine twice a day in kind of a normal fashion, the wet wraps really make it work stronger. Um, No systemic steroids, please. It's hard for me to emphasize that enough, but I'll try to do it with this slide. No systemic steroids for atopic dermatitis, it makes things worse in the long run. Um, A consensus of pediatric dermatologists generally agreed that you should never use systemic steroids for atopic dermatitis in children. So please don't do it. I'm happy to talk to you and offer you some alternatives if you're worried, if you're considering it. I've got a few slides here on diet, um, just because there's a lot of sort of misperceptions about diet and eczema among the general population. So I don't want to hammer this too much just because I don't want to spend more time on it if it's necessary. But the general idea is that it doesn't matter. I wish I could say that it never mattered. I wish I could, but it probably matters for like one in 200 patients. But the odds are <laughs> that that particular patient in front of you, the diet is not going to matter. So tell them to treat their skin. We can treat leaky skin. We have all these ways to do it and just not worry about the diet. Um, there's some more stuff in here about diet, um, but again, they don't need to see an allergist. This is not an allergy. It's eczema, it's something else. But if you do think that your patient should see an allergist for some other reason, we've got an allergy division here in our department, including this man, Aaron Kobernick, who shares an office with me. And I have a bit of a man crush on him. Look at him. He's boarded in like three different specialties. Um, so if you do want your patient to see an allergist, then there are some available. Some of my parents ask about probiotics and how, if that might help with eczema. There is a little bit of data that suggests, yeah, it might, but Really I think the problem is that there's just too much variation in the over-the-counter products that are available. You know, probiotics are good bacteria and there's hundreds of different kinds of good bacteria. So the probiotics that have been studied are usually sponsored by the company that makes that particular supplement. And it's hard to know exactly you know, what strain they were and what percentage they were and so on. So I don't recommend them. But if parents ask specifically, I usually say, oh, well, it might help, so you can go for it if you want. All right, that's all for eczema. Feel free to put questions in the chat if you have any. And we'll, I'll try to adjust my, um, my speed here to save time for some questions. All right, we're going to talk about diaper dermatitis. So what is the most common cause of diaper dermatitis? Is it atopic dermatitis? Is it candida? Is it irritant contact dermatitis? And if so, is that from stool or from urine? Think in your head. Commit. It's irritant contact dermatitis from stool. It's by far the most common. And all of these different presentations are different ways that irritant contact dermatitis from stool, more than urine, can present. And we have special names for all of this stuff like pseudoverrucus papules and plaques and Jacquet's erosive dermatitis and stuff like that. So if your irritant contact dermatitis is bad enough, then it can sort of look a bit different Uh, but still it's most commonly irritant contact dermatitis. And the treatment then is a gentle steroid like hydrocortisone, 2.5% ointment, and a barrier paste. I think there's enough evidence behind zinc oxide that I do recommend a product that has zinc oxide in it. There are various strengths in the -the over-the-counter products. The highest it comes is 40%. So some specific products that have that include Desitin max strength, Boudreaux's butt paste, maximum strength, And then this product, Baby Butts, I've never used. I was just trying to find good recommendations for patients. And I found this one on Amazon and it doesn't have very many um, uh, ingredients in it. And it has 30% zinc oxide. So I think it's probably pretty good too. I'm not sponsored or anything. And do that with every diaper change. So every diaper change, hydrocortisone 2.5% augment, barrier paste over the top. Even if that's eight times a day that you're putting hydrocortisone on that spot, that's okay. Um, Avoid over cleansing. So, some parents get worried that uh, because it's the poop that's causing this, they try to scrub and scrub and scrub and make their kid as shiny clean as possible. But that could lead to its own problems if you're adding more irritation from some kind of over aggressive cleaning. So, really, you just want to get off the chunks of poop, then hydrocortisone, and then plenty of this um, barrier paste like frosting a cake. And then if it's still not getting better, or if you just feel like it, you can add something like clotrimazole cream as the first step to discourage fungal colonization. So this is what my colleague, Cheryl Vanderhoeft calls her triple threat. So with every diaper change, clotrimazole cream, not because we think it's fungal, but just to discourage fungus from taking advantage of the diminished skin barrier that's there, and the hydrocortisone over it, and the barrier paste over the top of that. I see a lot of patients in my clinic who have diaper rash that have already been treated for Candida. So my impression is that primary care doctors feel that Candida is more common than it is for diaper rash, but it's also possible that I just get a biased sample and it's easy to treat for Candida. So it's not that many, 3% of infants in the two to four months of range. And the way you tell that it's Candida is because it's kind of this bright pink, beefy red. There are these satellite lesions. So they can be pustules or just sort of scaly papules. The skin folds are usually affected. There's kind of mild scale. That's all about diaper dermatitis. I'm gonna talk about warts and molluscum a little bit. Dr. Lewis did a pretty good job talking about warts earlier. So I'm gonna move this kind of, move through this kind of quickly. You probably already know the answer to this. Thanks to Dr. Lewis, there is not a gold standard for wart treatment for anybody of any age. So what I like to do, Dr. Lewis was talking about different strengths of salicylic acid. I usually recommend 40% regardless of where on the body they are, um, unless it's on the face, then I usually stay away from salicylic acid altogether. But these are some specific products that exist as 40% salicylic acid formulations, and they're fairly cheap. Some of them you have to buy online. They're just hard to find at Walgreens or whatever. So I tell parents to look this up on the internet and they can usually find them. And here's my pro tip. Get the wart every night, you put Vaseline on the normal skin around the wart to protect the normal skin from this powerful acid. Then you put the medicine on the wart, and then you cover it with a big piece of duct tape, like Dr. Lewis mentioned, or with like paper tape, medical tape, or something like that. Just something that holds all that stuff in place without absorbing it, because Band-Aids can absorb some of it. And then they, they sleep, and then they just do that every night, and eventually the wort will be gone. So some pearls about warts and molluscum. I like Candida antigen. I don't know how commonly it is available at PCP's office, but it's a protein that's derived from Candida that the body's immune system doesn't like. And it comes as an injection. So in clinic, we inject like 0.3 ml of this stuff into the dermis under one wart or under one molluscum lesion. And the idea is that it inspires the body's immune system to attack all of the warts and molluscum on the body. If it works the way it's supposed to, it's great because you cause discomfort in just one little spot, but you get a reaction everywhere. Downside is that it doesn't work for everybody and we have to do it every month, just like every white treatment. And if I do it like three times and, nobody has, and the patient hasn't responded, then I give up and I move on to something else. Um, but that's a decent option if you have it available. HPV vaccine. It's now approved for people age nine to 45 of both genders. So anytime I have somebody come in of that age range who has a wart, I ask them about it, because I feel like part of the good I can do on this planet is reduce the incidence of cervical cancer. So even if the HPV vaccine doesn't help with their common warts, hopefully I'm helping protect the world against cervical cancer. But there is increasing evidence that the HPV vaccine occasionally, or more than occasionally sometimes, does help with common warts as well, presumably through some kind of cross reactivity, since there are different strains that are involved in the vaccine than those that are involved in the development of actual cutaneous warts. But anyway, keep that in mind. Molluscum. My favorite treatment for molluscum is to not treat it. So I usually tell the, res- or the medical students who rotate through my clinic, if they're presenting a patient with molluscum, I say, okay, if you could talk the parent out of treatment, you get an honors. Sometimes it's not possible though. um, And sometimes you just feel like you should treat them because the molluscum are all over their face or their daycare is not letting them come to school anymore and that kind of thing. But I avoid treating them if I can for the most part. A couple pointers that I think are helpful to know about molluscum are that sometimes when when the immune system finally wakes up and starts attacking the molluscum, they can get red and rashy and almost look kind of like eczema around them, or the molluscum lesions themselves can become inflamed and they can become painful. They almost look infected. So I've had a number of patients who've come to me who've told me that their molluscum, quote, got infected, and they received systemic antibiotics for it. But really, in all likelihood, it was probably just the immune system reacting to the molluscum and causing that inflammatory response. So if you see that happen, you can tell the parents it's good news. You don't need to treat them. You don't need to give them antibiotics. If you must, you can give them mupyrus ointment. That's Fine, Um, but it suggests that the immune system is finally reacting and those molluscum will be history in the next two to three months, usually. Acne. So uh, when you're seeing anything, you do an H and P, of course. So my history for acne is how long has it been there? What's affected? What have you tried and um, did it work? And what are you currently using? And then of course, for our girls and women, we also have to pay attention to pregnancy things and the hormonal issues like, is it worse around your periods? And then if I'm suspicious that there's something else going on, I wonder about some specific things like do you wear anything in that area, like sporting equipment or a mask these days, has maskne, it's kind of a real thing. And then different supplements like testosterone and workout supplements, different hormonal treatments can push on acne. Um, and then if I'm wondering if they truly have a hormonal imbalance, I might start wondering about endocrine or you know, hirsutism and things like that. And then the depression suicidality thing is usually if I'm thinking of putting them on Accutane or isotretinoin. So my physical exam, this is just how I document acne, include comedones, if they're inflammatory papules, how bad is it? Maybe comment on the scarring. All right, so to treat acne, you wanna target the actual lesions that the patient has, but you also have to think about how bothersome it is to the patient and maybe their parents, depending on how young they are. I like to keep things simple. You can easily go overboard with acne treatments. but simple tends to increase adherence. A lot of the acne treatments aren't safe in pregnancy, so bear that in mind. And then so many people, it breaks my heart, are using all this random stuff over the counter that they think is helpful for their acne. It doesn't work, sometimes it makes it worse. It's expensive. They shouldn't just come to a medical provider and use legitimate medically proven therapies for their acne, so stop all that stuff. So treat, acne treatments work by targeting different parts of acne pathogenesis. I don't wanna hammer this too much, except to point out that retinoids are the only thing that treats all aspects of acne pathogenesis. So what do these have in common? Tretinoin, ondansetron, and oxymetazoline. And the thing they have in common is that those are my three favorite medicines in the world. How I like them so much. On Ondansetron, I don't get to use very much as a dermatologist, but I remember working in the PEDS emergency room and how Ondansetron turned sick kids into healthy kids over the course of about 45 minutes. Oxymetazoline is like afro nose spray. It just offers such immediate relief. And then tretinoin, great for the skin. Everybody who's not pregnant or breastfeeding should probably be using it. Um, and here is their strength. the Adapalene is the mildest, and then various strengths of tretinoin, and then tazeratine is above that. So I usually start people on tretinoin 0.025%, and if that's not too irritating, I go up from there. And adapalene is cheap, $12 these days. I usually use doxycycline if I'm treating somebody's acne with an antibiotic. I think it has a more favorable side effect profile than minocycline. And in women, we have access to hormonal options as well. So OCPs and spironolactone both act on these hormonal pathways and give you some improvement. So you wanna use the appropriate treatment for your patient's particular acne and how bad it is. And I find that dermatologists have a much lower threshold to start systemic therapy than at least like the pediatric residents who rotate through my clinic. So I say, think about if this was your face, would you wanna futz around with topicals for three months and then have to do a systemic medicine or do you just wanna hit it now with doxycycline? And sometimes the answer is, well, all they need is topicals because they just have some comedones on the forehead. But I would have a fairly low threshold to start that stuff. Um, OCPs are options. There was this nice study that compared um, patients' perceptions of how their acne did on various OCPs. So you can see here Drospirinone was the the top one in that study. And I have translated those into brand names for you guys because it's hard to keep all that straight. So I usually use Yaz just because it's got the best data for acne behind it, I think. I usually don't add topical antibiotics. What I usually do is benzoyl peroxide wash in the morning, tretinoin cream at night, and then like doxycycline, if I think that it would be helpful. Um, refer, if you want a patient to have isotretinoin, they're recalcitrant, they have systemic symptoms, the distribution is unusual, or are you worried about something funny like hormonal abnormalities, you're welcome to refer to me, there I am wearing a bow tie, or to you know one of my colleagues. All right, that's the end of the lecture. I mentioned this CME activity about atopic dermatitis that I'm doing. It's worth 1.5 CME hours. Um, it's Free form, you spend some time doing some modules, there's a couple live discussions. Um, the link is convoluted, so I think Lindsay just put it in the chat. If you guys would like to join me there, I would love to see you guys there. And we've got like three minutes if anybody has questions. Okay, so first question is if you're aware of any research or clinical experience regarding any tie between gut health and common skin conditions like eczema psoriasis. So the gut-skin axis, I believe, is getting more press these days than it used to. I am aware of some that sh- suggest that psoriasis in particular can be due to some gut stuff. But overall, most of the research is fairly preliminary at this point. Um, and most of the research on diet and acne has shown that diet doesn't matter. Okay, next one is Aquaphor for babies. Aquaphor to my, in my opinion is like expensive Vaseline It's nice and greasy which I like but it has some other ingredients like lanolin in it that could potentially sensitize your patient and give them a rash plus. It's like 13 bucks for a tube or a tub compared to like three dollars for Vaseline I have Steroid use in the and genital area and then somebody's asking about times and No breaks like Monday through Friday weekends off one week off like, What's your schedule? So you can certainly use steroids in those areas. I usually use milder ones like hydrocortisone 2.5% ointment or desonide ointment on the face and genital area. Um, I don't usually give people breaks from their steroid, especially when we're talking eczema. I wanna just hit it hard and make it go away. Sometimes I use the metaphor of a fire. Eczema is like a fire. You wanna use enough water to extinguish that fire because if you stop putting water on it while it's still smoldering, it'll just flare right back up. I feel like if you hit it hard and make it go away as early as you can, you will use less medicine overall in long run. Um, how do you feel about dupixent for severe atopic germ? Dupixent or dupilumab is a great medicine, a game changer. One of the, I mean, probably the most game changing medicine I've seen, even though my career has been very short. Um, it's now approved for ages six and up, and um, we definitely use it in people who are severe. Okay. Um, there are some over the counter things for molluscum like conzerol yes right. there I are mean, you think that is worthwhile um so probably nothing really helps for molluscum but there's a little bit of medical science behind it anything that kind of irritates the skin creates an immune reaction right because the irritation is immune cells being present in the skin and then when we use treatments like this we hope that some of those immune cells find the virus tell all their friends and mount this immune response to all of them so i think that in some patients it probably works sometimes but so I don't discourage parents from doing it, but I think for most parents, patients, it doesn't really help much. And then canthrone as well. Canthrone or cantharidin. So I don't love it. I find it unpredictable. Some people get big honking blisters that are painful and make life truly difficult for them. I've had par- patients who've told me they weren't able to sit down for a week after a treatment. Then some people don't seem to react much at all. Um, but I think that in the age range of like two to seven, when you don't have a lot of other options, then it's what I reach for. We'll do two more questions, and then we'll type some of these answers on the chat for everyone. Um, how long will you do a course of doxy before the risk of long-term antibiotics outweighs the benefits? Three to six months is my limit for doxycycline. If you've been giving people a good topical regimen and they've been adherent with that and with their doxy, and they still have acne at three to six months, it's time for isotretinoin. What can you say about the bleach baths and also the new biologics right So I talked about the biologics. That was dupilumab. Bleach baths. I don't feel like the medical data is strong enough for me to recommend them. And this is part of my keeping it simple approach as well. Taking out care of eczema is fairly complicated, so I like to not do anything that I don't feel like I have to do. So I think bleach baths don't hurt. They might help a little bit with some people, but I usually don't recommend them. And that will do it for this bonus episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks, of course, to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle, my co-host in our normal episodes. You can find us on our website, of course, dermospherepodcast.com, where you can find our entire archive, as well as links to all of the articles that we discuss. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and social media expert, who keeps those moving along. And we'll see you guys next time.